Welcome to the Addiction Connection. We like to believe the opposite of addiction is actually connection, and we are going to attempt to educate you and possibly even entertain you while we navigate all topics addiction. Hi, I'm Dr. Kirk Devine. And I'm Dr. Heather Bell, and we both provide primary care and addiction services. It's our goal to help you learn more about the disease of addiction and its treatments. And we're back with COVID-11. This would be our 11th, that's why it's COVID-11, our 11th COVID recap. I wonder if we should start making bets on how many of these we're going to have. I hope it's not that many, but we'll see. We have funding for about eight more, <laughs> and, and then we're going to be out. Um, so today we had uh, kind of an interesting recap by MDH on some of the long-term care, and we had... Uh, somebody also who is working in long-term care as a uh, campus administrator also come on and talk a little bit. And then we were fortunate enough to have uh, Senator Tina Smith come on for a short time. The Senator Tina Smith. Uh, The Senator Tina Smith. So, So, yeah, I think the big point of this was to really highlight the outbreaks in Minnesota long-term care and assisted living and group home and treatment type facilities because in Minnesota this has been a huge, huge problem, if you will. Yeah, we've had uh, a ton of cases. About three quarters of our cases have been on long-term care, way more than our friends to the east, Wisconsin. Yeah, they were leading deaths until long-term care got hit. But um, So first we started with Leslie Lovett, who works for the Minnesota Department of Health, and they are notifying residents and staff members anytime a long-term care does have a COVID exposure. They are notified of it. And then a person from the state gets kind of assigned to that facility to go in um, either virtually or sometimes on site to try to help um, contain the the person or the outbreak and all of that to try to um, get infection control practices down to try to have it not hit the entire facility. Um, They did point out that although a vast majority of all long-term care facilities in Minnesota have had at least one case, a majority have had only one case. Yeah, so So. it's it's spread out a little bit. There's a few of them that got hit hard, but not everybody. Uh, Karen Martin came on from MDH as well, talked a little bit about some of the data that we're seeing in the news as well, Uh, almost 9,500 cases and 508 deaths. Actually, a uh, over 400 of those were long-term care. And uh, I think it's really interesting that that whole long-term care is really only 18% of the cases, but it's 81% of the deaths in Minnesota, which just shows you uh, what a vulnerable group that is. Extremely. Um, they say that 20% of all the skilled nursing facilities in our state have had at least one case, as well as 8% of the assisted living, accounting for the fact that assisted living are a little bit lower because they do have tend to have their own apartments and less um, needs for medical care and kind of that direct care um, and more separation of people. And, of course, we all know this uh, big group of people. It's been estimated maybe 29 to 30% in some studies that, uh, that have been asymptomatic uh, when they get sick. And they're, they've done this testing in long-term care staff, and, and it's right in that area, about 25% are asymptomatic. And this is the, yeah, like you mentioned, the staff, which is hard and was asked several times in different questions as well, is that, you know, a lot of these nursing homes are already so understaffed 
And, you know, nursing homes have done a good job as far as limiting visitors. But when you have the staff that has to come in, you know, having this high a per- possible percentage already understaffed, I mean, what are you really supposed to do? Yeah. So they really talked a lot about preparing for that, uh, that you can assume that a 20 to 30 percent of your staff is going to get taken out at some point and not be able to work. So I think that uh, they're really encouraging the nursing homes and uh, different physicians who are the medical directors of these nursing homes coming on their weekly calls, which is on Wednesdays, 3.30 to 4.30 Central Time. And, and uh, of course, we're in Minnesota, so that would be Central Time. Uh, but there's uh, there's a lot going on for those, and people can go on and, and kind of really stay abreast of what's, uh, what's coming out about long-term care. Not only that, um, they did say that, you know, they are looking at different strategies to help kind of repurpose different nurses and different healthcare personnel that might have been um, furloughed or laid off from their other employment to try to get people into the long-term care. And there's definitely places um, that will take, whether it's retired people, volunteers. So it's really just go to the MDH site and and search this. Um, So... Yes, there are a couple different testing strategies and different strategies as far as like if a patient is admitted to the hospital and they have COVID, as far as how do they go back to their facility? And there's two different criteria. One is this test base, test base. so patient needs to have two negative tests in order to return to that nursing home or that, that facility. There's other ones based on symptoms, age, other comorbidities. There are some long-term care facilities in our state that can... Um, really separate and have isolation rooms, have negative pressure rooms. But then, of course, there are some that don't. And so they're looking at different strategies across the state as far as how do you house these patients without exposing other patients. I've never been in a negative pressure room. Does it make your ears pop? I was wondering the same thing. Yeah. Uh, The one thing they did talk about is that uh, there's going to be a toolkit for nursing homes that's going to be out any day now. And this will be on their website. It'll be uh, available it's going to be kind of a constantly changing uh, thing, so it'll it'll be continually updated. So uh, keep that in mind that you should be able to find that in very very soon. Very soon. And they said the toolkit is really going to try to help um, dictate how nursing homes should be, whether they should how they should handle their meals, how they should handle visitors, which of course they're not doing how they should do vital signs of these um, residents as, you know, we all know at this point that a lot of people are asymptomatic, yet they're still hypoxic or their oxygen is quite low. So should you be doing oxygen checks every couple of hours as well as temperatures on all residents? So some of these these to-dos or these recommendations are going to all be in that toolkit. And kind of at the end of her talk, she did talk a little bit about uh, how we're testing very heavily in these long-term care, and that may be why we have more positives uh, than other states. And in fact, we're doing some post-mortem swabbing as well, whereas, uh, you know, Minnesota always goes all out. And uh, some of the states just aren't doing that. They're not looking for that. So that may be part of the issue as well. Right. And um, in each, they pointed out that each community is obviously going to be a little bit different. And they, they urge each community to have like this one kind of lead per facility who stays up to date, gets all the updated information from the state, all the new recommendations who can then lay that out and put that out to their um, employees and um, really involve the local public health and local um, systems that's already in place in each individual community to try to help uh, mitigate some of this risk and spread. Yeah. So then Lindsay Kruger came on and she uh, 
she's one of the people that her team basically enforces the regulations and uh, provides technical assistance to these uh, long-term care sites. And um, so they basically partner uh, kind of as that COVID case manager to help these staff uh, facilities with staffing needs, with uh, uh, being up to date on everything. Uh, they partner with local public health kind of as as the cases become uh, evident. So uh, they're working in the communities to, uh, to really stay on top of this. Yeah. She mentioned something called ICAR, this assessment to make sure each facility is adequate, looking again at the visitors' activities, meals, screening, staff exposures, uh, donning and doffing, PPE, cleaning, and all of that, and all the action plans with that are on that MDH uh, website for guidance on these best practices. Um, but really trying to, again, keep that one person in charge to kind of lead the way. And then we transitioned to Ann O'Connor. And she talked about staffing uh, as well and how this is really going to be an issue for long-term care facilities of what she is an administrator. Uh, and so even even when there's very solid plans for staffing, uh, you're going to end up with these shortages because of uh, you know, really the randomness of who gets sick. And uh, again, I think nursing homes have always been a place where we've had difficulty getting the right staffing, and, and uh, this is obviously going to worsen that. Yeah, and she also, uh, in her new kind of role um, with the state during this COVID outbreak, uh, has kind of been charged with uh, not only doing staffing, but discussing food prep and administration issues and making sure that they have testing adequate on site, um, as well as care for all of these facilities. And so, yeah, she just added, I think her her view on this was a good perspective because she's actually, you know, kind of in charge of a site. So she understands the, the day-to-day um, a little bit more. Yeah. And then the highlight, we had uh, the Senator Tina Smith come on. And uh, I think we've been fortunate we've actually met her before uh, when she was lieutenant governor, but uh, I don't think she'd remember you. Uh, she did call us Heather and Kurt. Yeah, that was just to be nice. <laughs> She's never going to remember us, but uh, uh, that was all opioid related, so she'd probably not know. But she came out and talked a little bit about how uh, COVID, obviously, uh, and we've seen this in the news, is is hitting hardest the people who already have kind of these uh, fundamental inequities and disparities. You know, communities of color and uh, uh, people at lower income, uh, basically. So. Yeah. She did uh, one of the recent kind of things that was passed from the government federally was this to really push testing. And that is something that she has been very passionate about to make testing standardized with lots of recommendations, understanding that this is how the economy is going to open back up. Um, And that was one thing that did uh, fortunately go through the government um, as opposed to some other things that are still kind of in the weights and the works in the weights. Yeah. should talk a little bit about the CDC uh, kind of being held back a little bit from offering some guidance at a national level. And and uh, I think we all feel that uh, the guidance that we're getting uh, basically changes every day. And from different people, it's different. It's like having two parents not on the same page. I thought I thought that was super cool that she just laid that out there. Like, yes, we're not having one source of guidance. It's, yeah. you know, the the CDC is saying one thing, even though they're supposed to be the best in the world, but yet each state has their own thing. And then each hospital system has their own. And she was able to recognize that frustration. And I think that was pretty cool that she was able to, to point that out as well. Yeah. One minute I can see somebody on a ventilator wearing a bandana. The next week I got to have a moon suit on. So yeah, things have changed. <laughs> uh, 
but it, it is. It's very hard, I think, for all of us to to really understand what we should follow. And I think that, to to be honest, in my opinion, I I just think you can't pick one and just go with that and think you need to think for yourself and think about what's safe and and uh, read the literature because a lot of times in my, I I think I think some of the things we see from the CDC and other places lags a little from the literature. Mm-hmm. And I. She kind of ended with um, really answering questions about, you know, how telehealth can include, you know, telephone, not just face-to-face and trying to increase access, um, as well as you know, distribu- distribution of supplies and needed things down to, to rural areas as well, and, uh, you know, which we obviously completely understand. And I think she, she definitely showed a passion in understanding these issues as well, which was pretty cool. Um, yeah, then yeah. we ended with the Joe Helly. close personal friend, Joe Helly, um, our VP at Centricare. And, uh, and of course, he's part of the emergency response pandemic whatever with Dr. Hick. And we never know what to call them. Dr. Hick is the pandemic Pe- doctor. Dr. Pandemic. And Dr. so pandemic. he wasn't on today, but Joe uh, filled, filled in nicely, uh, talked about how... Uh, he's like the Robin, like the sidekick. <laughs> We're going to call him Pandemic Robin. No, we can't do that. <laughs> uh, but uh, he uh, he just basically pointed out so far, yeah, capacity is uh, fine as far as ICUs and uh, and for ventilators, we're doing great. Obviously, Stearns and Noble County, uh, he pointed out, have uh, really been catching up to Hennepin. I, I know Stearns went up over 1,000 cases now. So, uh, so that's, uh, I think, really uh, we're seeing hotspots outside the metro. Which is huge because I think that was a big thing. I don't know how many COVID echoes ago, but a few weeks ago, we definitely had talked with him about that exact issue is preparing rural. And so to say, yep, look, it's happening. Uh, earlier in the week, we had talked about some new articles with him that we had seen, and he was able to talk to that today as, um, you know, we had talked with Dr. Hick offline as well about oral pharyngeal swabs and or regular cotton tip applicators, brand name Q-tips, and how well, you can use these. Technically wasn't Q-tips, but. That's things what that, Dr. Things that, what Dr. L- Pandemic called them. Well, they're things that look <laughs> like a Q-tip, but longer, I yeah, think. Cotton swab and applicators. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, different ways that we can expand testing because we'll have more supplies, obviously, to do so and different mediums and if they're still as good. And, and just really trying to, to increase this, especially because elective surgeries have been given the go-ahead for mi- even Monday. You missed the point, though. The point was that... Uh, there was a small study that showed that there was great correlation between these, quote, Q-tips, unquote, and the expensive, hard-to-find swabs. And so uh, I think that's something that's obviously going to be looked into, whether we can use those. And in lieu of a pharmacy update today, because we did have Senator Smith on, and she, we were given 10 minutes, and we, st- we stole 20 minutes. Yep. That was pretty special. Um, we are going to do some other up-to-date, fresh off the printer, still kind of hot in your hand paper, literature updates, just quick bullet points of things that have been coming out of the pipeline, new research, because there's so much coming out every single day on this very young diagnosis and i I think we're going to try and do this uh we're going to try and do this every 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 episode yeah Mm -hmm. so so yeah the first thing that we we found very interesting was this new thing called the cope c-o-p-e consortium which if you google cope consortium 
there's actually this app-based or online-based data collection tool. So basically, you can actually track your own symptoms on this mobile app, which then actually helps all of these number people, the, the statisticians and the epidemiologists, really get good data on this illness, which I think is just a cool way because as a patient, you can track your own symptoms and stuff, and that's actually going to help the researchers. Do you think then people are going to track where you go? Oh, like, goodness. They're going to big brother you. Big brother me? So I guess there is that risk, and we can't you know, encourage that, but I just think it's neat to kind of help with this research. Yeah, there was also an interesting uh, study by Gupta et al. Uh, that just came out May 6th, and it was kind of an interesting thing about uh, the role of surgical and cloth, ma- cloth masks in preventing the spread of respiratory viruses in communities. And it showed that really uh, using these, if people actually use them, it can prevent the spread of respiratory viruses. Um, they didn't do anything with actual, uh, you know, focus on the masks and N95s that healthcare workers are are using. This was strictly, uh, you know, out in the community. Homemade and surgical mask, which I was at the grocery store today and it's interesting that every time I go there, there's more and more people. I probably only saw two or three that weren't wearing masks today at oh. people shopping because all the employees have for a while. Really, I was in a gas station. Not one person was wearing it. Well, you know. Except me. Do you want to talk would. about transmission? You uh, can look, talk about this one. You thought this was your. I thought this was really cool. And and this is actually uh, a, a quick paper that had been done that came out on May 7th, I believe, that talked a little bit about uh, in Spain, when they've looked at the association uh, between temperature and number of COVID infections, it's obvious that the that there's actually an inverse relationship. So the warmer it gets, the less trouble there is. But they found that wind speed and humidity had no association. Uh, you know, everybody's talked about the humidity thing, but uh, they're saying no. No association, but that this association, this inverse association with temperature and daily number of infections can actually lag for up to six days. So, I mean, we can go back and look at our weather from last week was quite nice. So maybe we should be having a dip soon in Minnesota. I don't know if you can you know, spread Spain to Minnesota. I don't know. Um, so then this was also a really kind of neat thing, um, which we've decided we should start expanding to everything. And this is something that came out of um, internet search patterns, actually. They actually looked at different ways that people have searched online different symptoms associated with coronavirus. So things like fever, cough, coronavirus symptoms. So whether you Google these things, well, they're finding that whenever there's an uptick of these type of searches, approximately five days later, you're going to have your next hotspot for infections. That's super cool. Super cool. I think we could use that for so many things. It's like, you know, opioid use disorder. If you see the number of searches go up, you know there's more heroin in a particular area. We'll do that in our next project. Yep, that's it. So one final topic we wanted to to kind of discuss. Yeah, the COVID-19 Debility and neurologic, pulmonary, neuromuscular, and cognitive complications that come after this. This is actually published in the American Journal of Physical Med and Rehab. So this is legit. The war on COVID-19 pandemic. Yeah, so they talked a little bit about, you know, we should be, you know, like everything, we should be planning ahead. Um, Yeah. Uh, Described that that we should anticipate the demands uh, 
that are going to that are going to be placed on. <laughs> <laughs> Do that one more time for me. Yeah, there we go. Uh, we should have been thinking ahead a lot uh, back in January, but uh, really that we need to think ahead because th- there's a population that's going to really need a lot of rehab following their hospitalizations. We've talked about uh, patients going back to nursing homes after COVID or after a se- serious illness, and it isn't just physical. Uh, it's neuro neurologic. It's uh, psychiatric. It's just a lot of things. So uh, really we should be looking ahead, and um, I think that's uh, something we should start doing right now. Yes. So yeah, it was a very um, good week in COVID Echo World, and we are looking ahead to next week. Lots of different topics we're still trying to finalize, but different things like derm and pediatrics and post-mortem care and domestic violence. All these things are in the pipeline coming up. So um, until next Tuesday. Yeah, we'll have to sort out who can do what days next week. So we're still working on that. But always feel free to contact us in either from the Twitter at that is at Echo CSCT or um, through our Facebook site, The Addiction Connection HK. And uh, we would love to hear your feedback as well as possible other topics you'd like to hear about. Feedback that's positive, it's negative, keep it to yourself. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Uh, but And what's our opioid? Uh... Topic next week, this is extremely awesome. The inventor of the Project Echo thing, Dr. Sanjeev Arora from New Mexico, will be doing his hepatitis C talk. He is the hepatitis C guru who I will say arguably single-handedly, and with all that's a gross exaggeration, um, helped lower the hepatitis C rates in New Mexico. No, I don't think that's an over-exaggeration. He actually did that. He did. So until then, uh, we will we will sign off. And thank you for listening. And uh, we'll talk with you next week. Now right. a little song. Are we having a song? I think we are. Battle um, legs, are you warming up? <laughs> so we'll leave you with battle legs and whatever they choose to play us. All right, thanks again.